Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. A crowd is looking for Jesus. And not just any old crowd, but more than 5,000 people who Jesus only yesterday abundantly fed with little more than five barley loaves and two fish. This is the crowd that, according to John, after they had received this miraculous feast, attempted to take Jesus by force and make him, right then and there, their king. Jesus, however, if you remember this encounter, slips through their fingers, first heading up into the mountains and then later crossing the sea to Capernaum at night. But this crowd proves to be persistent. They are so convinced they know who Jesus is that even when Jesus rejects their attempt at coronation and withdraws from them, they track him down, catching up with Jesus on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. This crowd believed they had seen enough of Jesus to know that whatever he had— They wanted more of it. But as we are about to hear, Jesus, as always, is about to dramatically reorient both their appetite, what exactly they're hungering for, and their appreciation for what specifically he's offering to them. If you have it open, Gospel of John, chapter 6, starting in verse 25, it reads, When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, You are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I promised, I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign? What sign then will you give so that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the bread, the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So my conversation partner today is someone who's been a member with his family for a long time as a part of Grace, who also has been serving as one of our elders in leadership, and also, you may not know this, recently graduated after many years from seminary, Fuller Theological Seminary, is in the process of ordination in order to become a chaplain. And he is actually doing his pastoral internship alongside serving as an elder here at Grace. I invite you to welcome the one and only Rocky Allen to the stage, please. Welcome. 
Morning. <laughs> Rocky, it's good to have you with me. Again, the way that we do this is we sort of recap. We, we start this conversation and then bring it into this room. We start the conversation with the first of three questions around which this message is oriented, which is what I call the huh, what question. We get together and we both have been looking at the passage, reading it as I just did. But in reflecting upon it, I asked Rocky, what do you, in listening to the, to the Word of God, receiving and understanding it, what is it that would help you to understand this better? What question might you have about this passage? Now, I will give a little spoiler. Rocky, being a recent graduate of seminary, brought his A-game um, <laughs> to our conversation, which was awesome. Um, and so in many respects, he really didn't have a question. It's not that he fully understood it, but he didn't have the typical question. He was more kind of clarifying sort of what he was struggling with in the passage. And so, Rocky, your question was, what exactly is the crowd seeking from Jesus? What's the disconnect here, right? Right. Okay, so I'll recap what we talked about, and then we'll launch into the second part of uh, the second question. So what you see going on here, it's really important to understand, you know, and, and Rocky's question is a pointed one. What exactly is the crowd seeking from Jesus? Because Jesus, right from the outset when they show up, says, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate loaf, the loaves and had your fill. But it's very important, Jesus isn't suggesting with that opening statement that the crowd is looking for more food. That's not what's going on here. It's if, the, if the, all the people wanted was a free lunch, a second helping of bread and fish, there were probably easier ways for them to get that than following Jesus across the lake. If you remember the feeding of the 5,000, the only miracle in all four Gospels, uh, it wasn't that they ran out of food. From a small boy's lunchbox, they had enough behind to fill 12 baskets. So they're not here asking for more food. So what are they asking for? Back to Rocky's question. The gathered crowd clearly, as we see as this conversation progresses, recognizes what Jesus did in their backyard is a sign. And the sign they perceive it as is a green light for the revolution against Rome to begin. Why do I say that? Well, their intentions are made clear when, they're, and they, when they respond to Jesus and say, what must we do to do the works God requires? And the works that of God they have in mind are the works of liberation, of exodus from their oppressors. And you see this as the conversation progresses, right? Because they reference Moses. The logic in their mind is, hey, if Moses was able to deliver their ancestors out of slavery in Egypt and take them through the wilderness and keep them alive with bread, then this Jesus could be the Messiah, the one at last come to set Israel free from Roman oppression. What do the people want? What are they asking for? They want power. They want to start rebuilding the kingdom of old when the nations of the world serve them and not the other way around. That's, again, why at the end of the feeding of the 5,000, they try to forcibly make Jesus their king. But as we heard, Jesus immediately redirects their, their attention, their focus, by letting them know that they're really focusing on the wrong thing. When he says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And again, what's going on here is Jesus is implying something that he'll get, eventually be very explicit about. But in first, he's implying their hunger, what they're hungering for, what they're searching for, is not really a what, but it's a who. It's not for what they can grab and take for themselves, but it's for the one who has come to give them himself. You, and it's so important to see the shift that takes place in that moment when Jesus basically redirects them not to a what but to a who, to himself, implicitly, in response. To, and I find this so tragically ironic, and, and, and you know, we talked about this. Um, 
The crowd asks for what they've already been given. Did you notice that? We'll believe you have what we need if you give us a sign. Isn't that what Jesus just did? The crowd pushes even further and says, Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And this is, to me, the most crucial part of this passage. Rocky and I focused on is notice how Jesus responds. They say he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Notice what Jesus does. Jesus says, don't interpret the subject he as Moses, but as God. The true giver is not Moses, but the father. But then Jesus also, this is so cool. I geek out about this stuff, as you know. They say he gave them bread from heaven. Past tense. And Jesus, notice, flips the tense and says, no, it is my Father who gives you, present tense, the true bread from heaven. And I think that verse really highlights what the crowd is looking for and what Jesus is trying to, the point Jesus is trying to make. The crowd, don't miss this, recognizes the sign of the bread. They see the sign, but they misread what it means. And what Jesus is trying to help them to understand is the giving of manna, the giving of bread, is not simply a story that resides in Israel's past, but it's the ongoing gift of God in the present. And what Jesus is further trying to get them to see is the lesson of the manna in the wilderness was to understand God would always give the people what they needed. Jesus' point is recognizing the hunger we all have within us and realizing that only God can satisfy that hunger. And it's available through Jesus. The bread of God, Jesus says, is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And the crowd, you know, in this moment when Jesus says that, unhesitatingly replies, well, always give us this bread. And I said this to Rocky. It kind of reminds me of Peter at the foot washing. Well, wash my whole body. Don't just wash my feet. Give, me, give it all. Pour it all. And then Jesus, kind of similar to what he says to Peter, makes the point explicit, what he's been implying when he finally just says, you get the sense the crowd's just not getting it, and he says, I am the bread of life. In other words, the true bread we need is not the manna, all the stuff we get from God. The true bread is the relationship we have with God, that our Creator extends to us by coming down in person through the life, death, and resurrection and spirit of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the bread that satisfies all our hunger for reconciliation and redemption. Jesus is the bread that satisfies all our hunger for healing and hope. Jesus is the bread that satisfies our hunger for a life that transcends our brokenness, for a love that proves stronger than death. Now, we didn't read this part, but if you remember the rest of what happens here in John, and Rocky and I talked about this as well, when Jesus makes this self-designation, I am the bread of life, it is not well received by pretty much everyone. For a crowd looking for a revolution, this kind of revelation proves to be bread that's just too hard to swallow. In the end, if you even recall, some of Jesus' own disciples can't stomach it and walk away. So what's the takeaway here? And this is where we're going to pick it up with the second question of kind of reflecting on this. The takeaway for me is the caution that we can believe Jesus can give us what we seek while not realizing Jesus is who we need. We can believe Jesus is the one who can give us what we seek while not realizing it's Jesus whom we actually need. 
So Rocky, kind of recapping our conversation, we've been chewing on that since, since then. The, the next question is kind of, okay, from, from that conversation that we had, from what I've just shared with you, what connections or insights are you making? What kind of other thoughts got stirred for you in terms of this passage? Um, as, as far as uh, the so what here, the... I guess, you know, in our conversation, I, I centered in on that. On my first read was believe in the one whom he has sent. And understanding what, what does believe mean, and, and it means to trust him. Mm. And, and sometimes I think that's easy for us to go right past, you know, oh, if I believe it'll just happen. And I think what's happening is we're, we're just believing in for those signs, those perishables that he's giving, and then we miss that we need to remain reliant on, on uh, the one whom he sent, um, that there's a total reliance that's mm. uh, necessary, and um, that I guess it's easy for us to take what he gives and then walk away and think that we can go back to our, our lives the way they were and that, that, we're, that we're able to sustain ourselves, that we're, we're righteous on our own without him. Um, and, and we're looking for ways to, to maintain the, the, the status quo um, mm. of uh, sort of this righteousness, but it's not... We're not relying on, on, on Jesus. We're, we're, we're stumbling. Can you exp- I really like what, the connection that you made, and I want you maybe, if you can, to expand on it, this idea of we can believe in Jesus. I think it's another way of saying what my takeaway as well. We can believe in Jesus but actually not be, still be trusting him. What does that say more about that? What, does that, what, does that, what do you mean by that? Um, it's easy for us to fall back to our old ways of thinking um, that we can reach the next level on our own that, you know, that, okay, I got, I got what I need, you mm. know, I got that promotion or um, I, I survived this, this bout, I'm okay now. And then we just, we forget about where it came from and, and we, we feel like we don't, we don't need Jesus anymore. It's, so reflecting back what I'm hearing you saying, it's this idea that we can have a functional belief in Jesus, but not a relational belief in Jesus. We, yeah. can, we believe in Jesus because it gets us what we want, mm-hmm. but then once we get what we want, we aren't, we aren't necessarily, it's not that we're not believing in Jesus, but we're really not engaging with Jesus anymore, right? And that's the, the trust. So trust, trust is pushing beyond that from what I'm hearing you saying. Trust, trusting in Jesus is not just looking for Jesus or look, calling out to Christ in the moment when we want something, but it's even before we want something, rec- living out of what Jesus provides. Does that make sense? Yeah. There's a part of us that's always looking for transactions, or mm. a tra- a, a, this transactional, we get what we want. And uh, it's because I think it's the world that we live in, and that's where we find all of our worldly rewards that we uh, we default to that. Mm. Yeah, the, w- the way I would articulate what you're saying, and if this helps us to hold on to, is, and, and this is subtle, so bear with me, God's provision 
as the sign of the reliability of God's promise. And that's what God's provision is. It's a sign of God's reliability. God's provision as a sign of the reliability of God's promise is not the same thing as believing God's promise if God provides. It's not the same thing. I mean, think about, again, this story. The crowd comes looking for Jesus. Jesus doesn't come to them. They come to him. And remember where it last left off. They meant they tried to make him their king. So clearly we can step back and say the crowd believed in what Jesus could do for them, right? But when Jesus isn't willing to do what they want to be the kind of king they seek, they shift gears and demand that Jesus prove himself again. And to, to play off of Rocky's observation, the question that we have to kind of reflect on, is Jesus Lord and Savior, the bread of our lives only when he sets the table and provides the meal we want? Or do we, in counting our blessings, realizing all of life down to the very air we breathe is a provision, a sign of God's grace, do we trust that Jesus can and will fulfill his promise to always give us what we need? Because God's provision, again, is the sign of the reliability of God's promise. And one just last thing I want to say, and Rocky and I talked about this, that you can't listen to this passage. You can't listen to this encounter and not go to, go to several places. We already talked about Peter with the foot washing. But one of the things is read this passage and then go back to Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Do you remember that story? Because when Jesus was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, the devil appeared to Jesus for an outcome that's similar to the one that the crowd seeks here. You remember the very last temptation, depending on the order, which gospel you read, but one of the, the three is the devil offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth. You remember this? Without having to go through the crucifixion. And the devil basically says, all of this, all of this can be yours. Just give me what I want and no one gets hurt. And interestingly, also, one of those three temptations, relating back to this passage, the devil, remember, also tempts Jesus in regard to bread beckoning Jesus in his hunger to show his power, to prove himself to be the son of God by turning the stones to bread. So I ask you, when you think about that passage and then you look at this one, do you think it's a coincidence that one of the questions the crowd asks Jesus is almost identical, identical to the request of the devil? What will you do for us? Show us a sign. Give us bread like Moses did. Then we will believe. And I bring that up simply to say that's the temptation that's before us all the time. Is that our relationship with Jesus? When we say, oh, Jesus, I believe in you, provided you give me what I want. And when Jesus doesn't give us what we want, when we're struggling in our faith, how many of us, and I'll raise my hand, have prayed the prayer, Lord, if you just do this for me, I will believe. If you just do this for me, I'll recommit. If you just do this for me, man, I'm going to be better. I hope I'm not the only person who can raise their hand for that one. <laughs> I'm feeling very self-aware right now. Rocky, what, what, what are you thinking? Yeah, I think the passage um, when Jesus is in the desert and, and he's being tempted, uh, it's, it's, again, it's, it's an example that he's setting for us that he could, he could avoid and, and take the side door and uh, you know, escape. He, he doesn't have to deal with the suffering 
we do the same thing. Mm. The people in that setting, they don't want to deal with the suffering anymore, but Jesus is crying out to us, you need to trust me even through the hard times. And so often we look for something for a quick fix in, in those moments. And mm. Jesus is saying, no, you need to trust me. You need to hold on, hold on tight. It's, he's not promising that we're not going to suffer. He promises that we're going to have our troubles in this world. Mm. No, I, that, I, that's really a great insight because I think it gets to the heart of why do we do that? Why, why, why do we respond that way? You know, why do we look past the blessings? We almost take the blessings that we have for granted. Like, yeah, like that's the way it should be. You know, but then the stuff that doesn't, that's where we sort of call God out or we, we, we question Jesus. And, and, and back to why do we do that? Why, do we, why are we sort of transactional, to use your word, is because it, what it, it gets back to the word trust. Fundamentally, we want to be in control. Fundamentally, we want Jesus to work for us rather than to live out of the work that Jesus does for us. So, I mean, and, and I think that, that, it's that it's back to that of we don't, the crowd here is, I like, really like what you said. There's a sense of being tired of suffering. How long, oh Lord, are we going to live under the oppression of Rome? How long? And so they want to get out of that situation. And Jesus isn't, is promising freedom, but not freedom the way they want it. And for us, we hear the things that Jesus promises us. But I wonder sometimes whether it's myself or someone else preaching or teaching, when you hear those promises, do you stop, and this is why we're doing this sermon series, do you step back and say, what does Jesus mean when, he mean when he promises to make us free? What does Jesus mean when he promises to heal us? What does Jesus mean when he promises to do, the, the promises he make? do we actually stop and say, what does Jesus mean by that, or do we automatically jump to, this is what I mean by that? That's what that, that, that's what that means to me. Because, as you're pointing out, Jesus is going to get us there, but getting, it there, getting us there may, may be uncomfortable. It may be painful. And that gets back to the trust. Our, you know, when we, you know, we look at the things that God provides and we don't, we, well, this week is all about saying thank you, right? But when we say thank you, does that become for us sort of our assurance that God will take care of the rest that we can't see? Because that's the way it's supposed to be. The provision is, again, that sign of God's reliability. And we reverse it and we go, yeah, yeah, that's all great. But God, what have you done for me lately? Then I'll believe. You know, we talked about, um, and I think it's really significant too, it's kind of looking at this another way, is the crowd in that moment says, you know, what must we do to do the work, the works, excuse me, that God requires? And it's very interesting how Jesus answered. We talked a lot about this. Jesus says, the work of God, did you catch that? What must we do? And Jesus says, the work of God is this to believe in the one he has sent. In other words, the crowds are failing to receive this wonderful gift that Jesus is offering because instead they're focused on what they could or should or must do rather than, on, rather than focusing on what God is doing right in front of them. And, and we f fall victim to that too. Why do we assume, and many of us do, we have to work to get what we truly hunger for and seek? Again, this, I talked about this last week. We're going to talk about it. We, we're raised this way. Nobody's going to feed you. Nobody's going to take care of you. You better take care of yourself. We innately teach or raise this way and pass this on to our children, and it is the exact opposite of the posture that we're supposed to have with Christ. 
With the, with the crowd, we assume that the key question when we encounter God is, what must I do, Lord, rather than what is God doing? And to up the ante, like when, when, even when God isn't doing what we want, why do we pray that prayer? God, if you just do this, I'll believe. How many of you have added to that prayer, Lord, what do you want me to do so you'll give me what I want? Rather than recognizing God is saying, I don't want you to do anything. I want you to see what I'm doing. I want you to trust in what I'm doing. When our focus is more on what we do rather than what God is doing, that's where the other questions that burden us come in, right? When we're focused on what we do rather than what God is doing, then we get caught up in, well, how much is enough? Have I done enough? Is it enough? We get caught up in, well, am I seeking the right things? Or am I seeking the right things in the right way? And what's so cool, and I'm going to turn it back over to you, Rocky, to comment on this, is Jesus in that moment when the crowd says, what are the works we must do? Jesus doesn't give them an answer with a list of works to do, but he talks about the single work of God. The work of God is not something we have to accomplish, which is what the crowd implies. The work of God is what God accomplishes. Later in this passage, verse 44, if you have your Bibles open, if you don't, it's fine. Jesus will reemphasize something he says over and over again. No one can come to him unless the Father draws them. And this parallels with verse 33 here, where Jesus describes the bread of God as that which the Father must and does give. Not that we can make. Not that we can create. And I think this is another way of kind of soberingly hearing this, is that Jesus is kind of resetting our understanding of reality. That reality does not center on or is not determined by us what we are doing. No, the gospel, the reason why we're here is the declaration of what God does for us, in us, through us, sometimes even despite us. And so, and Rocky, I want you to comment on this. For me then, I think the assessment, when we kind of step back and go, am I living the, the gospel? I mean, I can believe it, but am I trusting it? Am I living it? It's not a matter of evaluating my faith in light of the work that I do for God. The assessment of whether I'm living the gospel is asking, am I abiding in the faith God places in me? Yielding to the work that God purposes to do through us. Again, it's not so much placing our trust in what we do, being in charge, being in control. It's placing our trust in being open to what God is doing. What do you think about that? Absolutely. I think one of the, one of the things that this is triggering, triggering for me is yeah. um, in, in, our, in the world we live in, we get so used to, back to what you said about earning and, and you know, feeding yourself. And I, I just recently was watching a, a video um, this week uh, about it was a famous uh, grief you know, psychiatrist Kubler Ross, mm -hmm. and she's sitting with a, a patient um, during the end of life, and uh, the patient's you know talking about how she feels like she has no purpose because she's used to going around and doing everything for everyone else, and uh, Kubler Ross uh, stops her in her tracks and he said and she says to the patient. So do you think that there is uh, no dignity in receiving? Do you think that that's less? And that's a big problem because with, with us is, is in our human condition that we forget is receiving is how we get the grace 
that's bestowed upon us. And that's, um, that's where we go wrong. Mm. Um, that's, we put up, you know, roadblocks, uh, barriers uh, to avoid that. Um, not necessarily purposefully, uh, but we're so used to, we're so addicted to that, uh, that fix, what, mm. what, what I can do, and then I'm good, I can relax, I can, you know, it's, it's like denial, I think. Mm. And I think we're denying Christ when, when we do that. That's powerful. I mean, when Jesus talks about don't chase after food that spoils, I, when I, I'm hearing that in light of what you're saying of how often we, 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 despite what we believe, you know, we're Christians, I imagine all of us in this room, those watching, I would hope, um, we, we say we believe that our identity comes from Christ, and yet we functionally live to try to always establish our identity, to, to prove ourselves by what we do, you know, and, and, and our identity sh- suffers if we're not able to do anything, like the example that you gave with that patient, and it, it, it is, it's, 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 it's that challenge, and, and, and you know, it's funny, because we've talked about this a lot in this series, because it's come up again and again, Jesus is called to die to ourselves, Jesus is called last week to serve others over ourselves, and maybe this helps us to understand why that's so scary for us and why it doesn't have to be. It's so scary for us because if we have to die to ourselves or if we serve others before ourselves, we're going to lose ourselves, right? Because if we live out of a place where our identity is about what we do to build our reputation, to prove ourselves, if we divert that energy to someone else, then we're going to get lost. We're nobody. We're just going to become, or we'll, we'll get twisted as we often do and be defined by what we do for the other person. But this is the thing. When our identity truly comes from Christ, when Jesus is the bread of our life, we will never lose ourselves because our identity is not defined by what we do. It's not defined by what other people say about us. And therefore, we can serve others. We can sacrifice. We can even die to ourselves because at the end of the day, it's, it can't touch who we fundamentally are, who we belong to. And I think, again, that's the, in a different way, Jesus is, again, trying to get us to understand. Don't work for the food that spoils. Work for the food that brings eternal life. We kind of, as we're talking about this, let's talk about sort of the, the now what question. The last question is applying and exercising insight, meaning, okay, how do we follow Jesus from what we're talking about here? What does it look like to follow Jesus more closely in our day-to-day lives, given what we're learning from this conversation? You have any initial thoughts about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, after this past week, um, I, reflecting, um, one of the things that was sort of a, that stood out to me or, or triggered in me was uh, from a conversation I had with a patient's family. Um, they, they asked me, oh, so how did you get here? Can you just real quick, look, just for people who don't know, set up what you're doing right now. So oh, I'm sorry. Uh, so I'm, I'm also doing a, a chaplaincy internship at, um, at Pomona Valley Hospital right now. And um, while I was there um, working, uh, someone had asked me how I got there. And in my response, um, you know, I went through the brief synopsis of my previous experiences working in um, air medical, um, transporting trauma patients, et cetera. And, uh, and things that made me resonate with that ministry, coming to the bedside to patients. Um, and, I, and I stopped at that. But it was, it was in rehashing that that in the midst of supporting her, something clicked that I, I didn't share. Um, 
I realized about myself and, and uh, when I worked in behavioral health uh, 20 years ago, I, I recall st uh, struggling with the idea that there are mental health disorders that cannot be fixed. And uh, young me, 20-some-year-old, uh, I, I was really bothered by that, that you couldn't fix that. You, you, there was, I felt like, well, what am I doing? What is my identity here? What am I supposed to be doing? Um, because in a way, it felt like there was uh, hope was lost. Um, and similarly, with, with patients, you know, there's a point where there's no more medical fixes. There are truly heartbreaking scenarios. Um, watching families say goodbye to their loved ones, and that happens daily in the hospital. It happens daily outside of the hospital, where there are no fixes. Um, what do we do with this? Um, the truth is, this is very uncomfortable space. Um, but also, in that, everything all of a sudden, suddenly becomes extraordinarily real. Um, we're no longer able to hide behind facades, um, there's no more hiding, you know, living with loss is something that won't go away, and we can, uh, we can live in denial for a while, but ultimately we're going to have to confront that, and, and this is where, where the sweet spot comes in, where we, we realize that out of our neediness that, that we have to rely on something bigger uh, than ourselves, than our human hands can fix. And this is when we have to draw back to God's promises for us. Um, the people who I used to worry about uh, whose mental disorders cannot be fixed, uh, when I encounter them in the hospital, um, I, I recognize that they appreciate being prayed for. And when I, I, when I do that and when I see that in, in the people, when I'm just there showing up, um, I see God's peace wash over them, you know? And uh, even if it's just for a moment, there's something about that moment that seems like it lasts forever, that that person is whole, that that person is an image of God, and that we can trust in God to do his work uh, through us. Um, and the other thing is, is that this it's god's mission it's it's not mine it's not what i say okay i'm going to put on my you know nice clothes today and i'm going to go out and you know when we when we're doing god's work it's him who's inviting us into it to participate in you know it's it's real easy for us to think that we're going to go and do something for someone else but some of the things that i realize is that the people that i think i'm going to do something for it turns out I'm the one who's supposed to be doing the receiving that day. And, mm. I, and I walk away, and my faith is, it, it's grown, you know. It, it's God's putting more into me through that other person. So I think when we think, when we think about mission and, and what God is doing, that we need to listen. We need to be observant. We need not to try to lift all this weight that's not supposed to be ours to carry to begin with. Yeah, what I'm hearing you say is we need to receive in order to give. Yeah. And, and, and or another way to say this, if it helps to stimulate the thought for you, we often try to do in order to be, and we have to be in order to do. And, it, it, and, and I, re I really think you, you really hit the nail on the head. I really think you're evoking something powerful here because... Um, 
we, we do, we, 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 it is God's work you're articulating. It's not the work we do. It's the work that God seeks to do through us. But there's constantly in Scripture this relationship between if we're not willing to receive, if we're not willing to let Jesus be dependent upon Jesus, rely wholeheartedly on Jesus, then we have nothing to give. Because it's only out of that dependency on Jesus that we have something to give. When we go and say, Jesus, thank you. I'll take that little thing here, and now I'm going to go do the rest on my own. We are dangerous. We are unhealthy. Not only to the people we're trying to serve, we're unhealthy ourselves. And this kind of, it's, I'm hearing you talk about, and I think it's a powerful, we can have a reactive posture in our relationship with Jesus or a proactive posture. And God is inviting us coming down to be with us for, to be proactive. And what do I mean by that? Can you pray to Jesus on your deathbed? Can you, when all of a sudden you hit the wall, cry out to Jesus, and is God going to be there? Yes, he is. You can reactively have that relationship. You can keep doing that. But God is inviting you into a proactive relationship where you don't have to live by the skin of your teeth, the seat of your pants, whatever you want to say, every day, where you're kind of just doing it until all of a sudden, whoa, too many plates spinning. Whoa, too much going on. Lord, help me. You know, the way I articulate this is I, when I keep chewing on this is the work of God that you believe in the one whom God has sent, I think about for myself, for all of us, how easy it is in the pursuit of satisfying our hungers. We all have hungers that we can actually take the good things of God, the things that the Lord provides, and turn it into junk food. What's the difference between junk food and good food? Junk food satisfies our hunger momentarily, but ultimately, we all know this, junk food damages our overall health. And the thing is, we kind of have this stereotypical view of what's junk food, but here's the thing. Truth be told, anything can become junk food in our life. Quick example. (laughs) Bananas are good. I think they're good. And they're good for you. That's what I've heard. But if I ate nothing but bananas, I would become malnourished, depleted, and severely bound up. Junk food isn't just about what's bad for you. Junk food is about the wrong approach to what's good for you. And we, when we take, as Rocky is evoking, this consumerist approach to God, we turn the good things that the Lord provides into junk food. Because when we take the good things that God offers us, as, that God offers to us, and he offers them to us as a means of nourishing our faith, but when we take those things and mistake those good things as the basis of our faith, We get fixated on the signs that God gives us rather than being focused on what the signs point to. We're turning those good gifts, good things, gifts meant to draw us closer to God into idols that eclipse or replace the Lord's presence in our life. When you come to Jesus, and I love how Rocky said this, and you say, this is what I need, and Jesus says, here you go, and you go, great, I'm now going to worship this. My job, my promotion, my grandkid, whatever, my new house. You're going to be worshiping that, working for that, thinking your life is all about that. And then when it goes away, you're going to turn around and go, can I have another? And when God gives, provides again or doesn't provide, what will your attitude change? Is Jesus a part of our diet or is Jesus a snack? Is Jesus a meal, a quick fix that you grab when you get hungry? Is Jesus the one who feeds you or sustains you? You know, sometimes it's interesting how we talk about Jesus. Do you talk about Jesus like this? Yeah, I'm in charge of my life. I got it going on, but I know a guy. I know a guy. 
You get into some trouble, here you go. I know a guy. You need Jesus. Or do you talk, my life is centered around Christ. Everything I am, everything I do, it's because of him. I follow him. I talk to him all the time. I'm looking at him all the time. I'm listening to him all the time. What happens at the end of this passage when many of the disciples walk away? Do you remember? Jesus turns to the original 12 and says, are you going to walk away too? What does Peter say? To whom are we going to go? Where are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We often lift up Peter's confession elsewhere. You are the, this conf- that's another great confession. Where are we going to go? Even if we don't fully understand this, even if we're listening like they are and going, this teaching's too hard, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Guys, Jesus isn't offering us a one-time spiritual event. And for many of us, our conversion to Christ, that's all it is, a one-time spiritual event. Jesus isn't offering us a single meal. Jesus is inviting us when we're hungry not to treat him like a snack. Jesus is beckoning us to change our diet for the rest of our lives to rethink what we rely on to sustain and satisfy us. Jesus is offering us himself as the one, the only one, who can satisfy our greatest hunger who can eliminate all those cravings that aren't good for us, who can nourish, who can grow, who can sustain our faith. We don't come to this table behind me. And I want you to think about this today and every time. We don't come to this table week in and week out to get a shot of grape juice and a wafer of bread so we can feel better about ourselves. Jesus isn't a quick fix, like Rocky said. Jesus isn't a happy meal. Jesus isn't something you try to see if you get results. Feeding on Christ is not about the temporary high of forgiveness or the buzz of eternal life. What Jesus offers in giving himself is more than a meal. Again, it is the invitation and promise of changing our diet. What Jesus is offering us in giving us himself is his person, his presence, his guidance, his power, Lifelong nourishment through a relationship that sustains us. Lifelong nourishment in a relationship that allows us to grow into the people of God that God intended us to be, the best and fullest version of ourselves. Rocky, you get the last word before we close. What do you think? The last word. The last well. Yeah, I, I really resonated with the, the snack, the snack food and, yeah, how it is. It, that's that's a great um, metaphor for what how how we treat God, how we treat uh, Christ. Um, every day that we wake up, it's you know, give us this day our daily bread. Mm. We have to we have to think about that. We have to lean into that and and ask ourselves, what is it that I'm seeking here? I, I think mm. that's. It's interesting, in your, in your chosen vocation where God's calling you as a chaplain, there's this tension, I, and I've, I've done some chaplaincy myself in preparation for from, from, from becoming a pastor, and I'm, but I, I think there's got to be a constant temptation that in some respects, people could perceive you as a, someone who provides an appetizer, you know, or a snack, and yet you have to cut against that, because you're coming into situations of, of need, you're coming into situations, acute situations, where people may be posturing from the standpoint of, hey, I just need, some, need this, I want this. And yet how you orient yourself to, 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 to represent Christ through you as not just being a snack, but as being 
a means of, of life that goes even beyond the acute situation that they're in? How do, you, how, do you, how, do you, how do you wrestle with that? How do you try to engage that? Good questions. Uh, you know, <laughs> asking good questions, mm. actively listening to where someone is at and, and, and showing them that, that I am here, I am listening to you. What, you know, they might tell you something that's the immediate need, mm. but I try to ask them, what else is on your heart? Because a lot of times there might be something worse than a physical ailment. There, a lot of, well, they're people. Yeah. We all have things deeper than what can be healed, or maybe there's multiple things that are, are broken. No, that's be- that is beautiful because I think that's a, that's a great encapsulation of what Jesus is offering to us. We come to Jesus and we often have a specific or a list of wants. And Jesus often goes beyond the wants to what we need, but the need gets to the deeper, some deeper things that we may not even be seeing within ourselves. And as a chaplain, I think that's spot on. I want to affirm that, is that it could be very easy to come in and just kind of, okay, you know, I'll pray for you, here you go, whatever. I'll anoint you with oil. And it could be very transactional. And it almost be, would be invited that way of, hey, I just want, and, and the presence, the staying, the questions, of, of, it's that relational connection that goes deeper, and that's where you're offering not just Jesus as a snack, but you're, off, you're, you're be embodying the presence of Christ, the power of Christ that's there. That's, that's really powerful. Well, let me close with these words. Generations after the Exodus, from slavery to freedom, those who purpose to follow Jesus... Here in this passage, remember the manna by which God fed their ancestors, but like their ancestors of old, they didn't embrace the lesson of the manna. They were, like us, hungry people, hungry for things they could not even realize yet, hungry for something deeper than manna could fill. And collectively, like us, they sensed there was something about this man, this Jesus that they needed. So they started to follow him. Don't miss this. They followed him. They hunted him down. They followed him. They made the journey across the lake to him. They engaged him in conversation, not knowing what they were asking for, and yet still compelled to seek something from him. The crowd recognized the sign but couldn't figure out what it pointed to, who it pointed to, the one who was standing right in front of them. And beloved, centuries after this incident, as a community that's been formed and bound together in the breaking of bread and the sharing of the cup, do we see a possible reflection of ourselves in this crowd? Do we not share the same tendency to miss the point? This encounter serves as a mirror to our own restlessness, our own ignorance when it comes to Jesus. And if we dare to glance at our reflection, perhaps we will realize that we too can become the people that are chasing after the bread that doesn't satisfy, the bread that perishes. We keep looking to what Jesus can do for us. What has he done for me lately instead of freely embracing the relationship Jesus seeks to have with us? Instead of receiving the satisfaction the sustenance of the work Christ purposes to do in and through us. As God's children, we can and we must stop working for food that perishes, food that comes from trying to feed ourselves, from trying to set our own tables, and we have to come to the table that the Lord sets before us day after day. Give us this day our daily bread. To accept the life-giving bread of Jesus is to trust in God. It means daily recognizing and giving thanks for the Lord's provision as a sign, 
as the assurance that Christ will always provide what we need, even when we can't see it, even when we can't understand it, even when we don't fathom how. Jesus will provide the food that not only sustains us, but saves us. Food that, again, grows us into our fullest and best selves. Food that we don't need to hold on to and hoard, but food that we're meant to share and celebrate with others, like we're going to do this Thursday around tables. Sharing it, knowing that there's enough for everyone. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life. Through your word that becomes flesh in him and guides us forward, through your spirit that fills us with his presence and power to be transformed, you, O God, feed us mind, body, and soul. The ingredients of your character, your love, your grace, your peace, your hope, make our broken lives whole. All that we are, all that we have, all that we yet shall be, every good thing, every blessing comes not simply from your hand, but through your abiding relationship with us. As we thankfully keep coming back to the feast, at the presence and provision of the table you set before us daily, strengthen us for service, that the seeds we sow in your name might grow and flourish, that the food, the resources we share from your kingdom might nourish and revive, that the thoughts, words, and actions we exhibit in following you would point and lead others more deeply into the full, abundant life you offer. This we ask in the name of the bread of life, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Thanks, Rocky. Thank you. Conversation. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.